Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXLAMNFM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where all our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Matt Robeson, my co-host, is the author of a moreperfectunionforum.com, a blog devoted to the deeper dive into what's really going on in politics. And he writes for thealternet.org, a really terrific site and uh, venue on the internet that uh, focuses on progressive politics. So here we are. It's uh, almost May. Spring is beginning to spring. The grass is greener on some other side. The flowers are coming up. Matt Robeson, how are things in the Robeson household in the age of coronavirus? Are the kids chafing at the bit? Are you having fun being their teacher? What are you doing to keep these kids? I mean, you've got a passel of children. What are you doing to keep everybody down on the farm? I'd say that we're deeply beset by first world problems, which is to say, we've all grown tired of Zoom conferences. We are uh, doing our best to muddle our way through homeschooling. Uh, we continue to believe that every single American teacher should be awarded, as Donald Trump would call it, a Nobel Prize. And uh, we are getting a little bit crazy. Yeah. yeah. But we're not experiencing real problems that uh, that Americans are facing. And for that, we're profoundly thankful. Well, it's a it it's it's a tough time, whether it's first world problems or not. And for much of the country, the problems are real, variable uh, and likely to grow. Uh, there are some places in the country where because of lockdown orders and stay at home orders, uh, things may be plateauing. We have no really great information about that. The uh, great orange uh, sun tanner in the White House has uh, been inconsistent at best. Um, his briefings are on, his briefings are off. He believes in science. He doesn't believe in science. People are going to die. Nobody's going to die. Everything's fine. It's a miracle. You can't keep up with the inconsistencies at the top. And the inconsistency at the top and the refusal to follow science has posed a real problem. He uh, incites governors in states to reopen for business and then chides them uh, when they do, he gets caught in a lie and then resorts to a Twitter barrage, which does nothing but diminish his stature. Uh, the Democratic uh, 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 strategy seems to be let the guy implode uh, because he is falling in the polling, which he has now dismissed. Uh, he relies on it when it's good, and when it's bad, he dismisses the polling. Uh, and it's just a sad state of affairs that, that instead of a coherent, cohesive, coordinated federal response, we have uh, the trumpeters uh, at the helm. 
the bailouts or recovery packages are in the eyes of many people heavily weighted towards big corporations. We have uh, large companies receiving millions or billions of dollars in aid, some of them shamed into giving it back, some not. And meanwhile, politics kind of plugs along. Um, in, for example, uh, Maryland, there was a special election in the congressional district that used to be held by my dear colleague, Congressman Elijah Cummings, a lion of Congress who uh, was the chair of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. I served with him on that committee. He passed away last October and Democrat, Crazy Mafumi, uh, easily defeated the Republican Kimberly Klasik uh, by a 73 and to 26.8%, and that's approximate margin to fulfill the remaining term. Um, he had previously, if I'm not mistaken, held that uh, seat. Um, and he, for a decade, was president of the NAACP. Um, and, and just to highlight some of the challenges for voting in the age of coronavirus, apparently the state had three, count them three, one, two, three, very heavily regulated polling stations for voters who chose to cast their ballots uh, in person. Uh, people are calling the election a successful first test for Maryland under the new pandemic uh, restrictions. And they've got a uh, presidential state and local primary scheduled for June 2nd. But it, it points up the challenges. How do you run a uh, a mail-in voting campaign with, and then the three polling stations uh, in a congressional district. It's, 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 it's hard to imagine that our voting has changed that much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we went over a lot of these issues with our guest, Justin Levitt, last week. And uh, for our listeners, I definitely commend that episode to you really great deep dive with a lot of insights from a top national expert on voting reform, gerrymandering, and voter access. And it is becoming apparent that there are, there are deep problems that are going to have to be worked through here. And I think you're right about the larger point that it's becoming even more apparent that the federal government response across the board, voting um, the entire pandemic response uh, it's not like Jared Kushner has portrayed this week uh, some kind of a rollicking su success. You know, the, these days, the information and the modeling and the studies are coming so fast that there was a really shocking number that was put out in the New York Times two weeks ago and really didn't get the attention that it deserved. There were a couple of epidemiologists who looked closely at the impact of even one week of earlier intervention in terms of social distancing and other public health measures that the president announced as a guideline on March 16th. And they found that if the president had intervened two weeks sooner on March 1st, just two weeks, which other countries had done and which internally uh, it's come to light, uh, multiple agencies of the federal government, including intelligence agencies, were warning that he should do, we would have avoided 
90% of the coronavirus COVID-19 deaths that Americans have uh, incurred uh, uh, in recent months. So that's 54,000 Americans who have died, who need not have died necessarily if the government had acted sooner. I think that there is no more stark uh, depiction of the importance of intelligent and strong leadership uh, than a number like that. Mm. It's really beyond sad. It's criminal. It's um, it's horrific. It, it it and of course the president takes no responsibility. Doesn't care. Uh, really has shown uh, extraordinary lack of empathy. His lack of empathy is so extraordinary as to appear to me to be pathological. It is as if this is a human who is incapable of the basic kind of compassion and understanding that any ordinary person, any human would show in the face of the kinds of uh, disaster uh, that the United States has faced, caused in large part by his own failures, his own complete inability to take charge uh, and act with anything resembling competence. This is a person who is and was completely unfit for the office. I remember at the time of the election in 2016, uh, I confess that I did not foresee a global pandemic. I worried more about I don't know, nuclear war with North Korea or craziness with Iran or some, some terrible event at which he was at the helm and his incompetence would shine through. But this really, this exceeded all my expectations for a disastrous outcome for the 2016 uh, elections. Um, but there, there's an election coming in November uh, in Ohio, they held a much maligned uh, primary. It was originally scheduled for March 17th. Uh, they delayed, um, there was a contentious legal battle to delay the primaries. 1.3 million voters came out. They had three choices for their ballots. Um, there was mass confusion. Uh, Biden one over Sanders very, very handily. Um, and by the way, uh, Biden has now been endorsed by Nancy Pelosi. He's been endorsed by Hillary Clinton. Um, but tell me, talk to me, Matt, about New York, which um, uh, was the first state to outright cancel its rescheduled June 23rd presidential primary. Um, the, uh, Biden is the presumptive nominee. And they basically, they canceled the primary, uh, provoking uh, backlash from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who called it completely wrong, a blow to American democracy. What gives? How does a state simply cancel a primary? Well, it's worth bearing in mind that the primaries are functions of the parties and are not constitutionally mandated 
election contests and without weighing into the whys and wherefores uh, of the public health aspect of it, it can certainly be argued given the recent experience in Wisconsin from where unfortunately uh, there's now emerging evidence that those who voted uh, are developing COVID-19 cases at a higher rate than those who didn't. Uh, it can certainly be argued that taking this step uh, in the public health interests is reasonable. It is noteworthy though, that uh, for, for listeners who may not have caught it, uh, that the Biden campaign reached uh, an understanding with the Sanders campaign earlier this week that will allow Bernie Sanders to retain the delegates he has won so far. That's not the normal practice under uh, Democratic Party rules. He would have given up uh, about a third of those delegates having suspended his campaign. And I think that really goes to what we've talked about on this program previously, which is a high degree of respect and ability to work together between Biden and Sanders, something we didn't see in 2016 between Sanders and Clinton. And that's now bearing some fruit here in understandings like this one that maybe mean that the Sanders campaign doesn't need the primary um, as uh, as much as they would have. So it's hard to it's hard to comment further on it. Um, I'm I'm not trying to argue against AOC here, but I'm certainly not going to argue uh, for reasonable steps that don't otherwise abrogate constitutional responsibilities and that might protect the public health. This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so anywhere, day or night, anywhere in the world that your travels may or may not take you, since most of us are still staying in place and following those orders to stay in place, um, you can still reach us as a podcast. And we're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be back with more Off the Record after this. We are back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where all our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, and we are talking about politics. Our favorite subject, politics and life, because... As we've seen, folks, elections have consequences. Elections have real consequences. I want you to imagine that instead of President Donald Trump having been elected in 2016, we had President Hillary Clinton. Imagine, just imagine what the response would be to the global pandemic that we find ourselves in. I dare say that we would have seen a more organized, more cohesive, more compassionate, more empathetic, smarter response uh, at a much earlier date than we're seeing with 
Donald Trump, who doesn't seem to get what's really going on. So Matt, one of the things that you and I have discussed is what do you do in terms of the economics of recovery when you've got millions of people filing for unemployment, you've got millions of people unemployed, you've got a situation where who knows what the new normal is going to be? Who knows what recovery looks like? There are many businesses that are never going to recover. There are many people who were employed who are now going to be unemployed and looking for work. The disaster, the economic and social disaster that the pandemic has wrought so far with more than 60,000 people dead, more than all the people who were, gave their lives in the Vietnam War, with more than a million cases in the country, with no end in sight, with a second wave of pandemic projected for the fall, with no total vaccine yet on the horizon, but only some progress in a drug which may uh, speed things up a little. The, the scope of the economic disaster is unimaginable, not to mention the impact it will have in the long term on national debt, on deficits, on, on what will happen at the federal level about dealing with the overall uh, uh, economic pie. But we, we haven't seen anything remotely like this, except in the Great Depression. Um, what are your thoughts about what kinds of programs are, ought, to, ought to be put in place to help people who are going to be out of work, skilled people, unskilled people, young people especially? Uh, and, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about my daughter. My daughter's in her 30s. She had been living down in Nashville. She was working in uh, the hospitality business at a restaurant and pursuing uh, her singing and songwriting. She's an artist. She cares deeply about doing the right thing. She cares deeply about the environment. She's in a, a master's program now uh, at the new school, which is all remote and online. And she's at she's at her wit's end trying to figure out whether or not it's worth it to take out the loans to continue in school because uh, what she was counting on was working with people from around the planet at the new school in New York and in cohorts to, to, to pursue a program in arts and entrepreneurship and sustainability. Now she doesn't know whether she um, is, even wants to continue schooling and she's looking at a, a, a job and economic environment, which was tough to begin with. And now for her, it looks like a no hope, no hope economic environment. What's a person to do, and especially a young person? Well, it's a really complicated question. And I don't think that there's a silver bullet solution. I suspect that uh, there's going to have to be um, a lot of 
It's like Bill Bradley, Senator Bill Bradley, who ran for president in 2000, um, came a lot closer than people uh, would have expected uh, at upending Al Gore. It's like he used to say, you try a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, But, you know, I do think that there is uh, one thing that we should be doing, uh, which is putting uh, some surge capacity into our national service programs. Um, You know, I think that there is a, we're we're all aware of the the major two sides of the coin crisis that we're facing right now. There's the public health crisis and there's the economic crisis. And since we have a known shortfall in testing and since public health experts tell us that testing is really the key to being able to reopen and unlock and unfreeze the economy, you have to have a an aggressive outreach program, a contact tracing program to mitigate some of the shortfall in testing and to try and prioritize it. Um, and so it's, it's sort of a stepwise, we're not going to be able to help your daughter and the 30 million additional Americans who have filed for unemployment uh, in recent weeks, unless we're able to unfreeze the economy across the board. So the first step there to that kind of a reopening is to try and stand up a multi-hundred-thousand-person program supported by the federal government through our national service programs to initiate contact tracing, um, to be able to uh, isolate people who have been infected and have a staged reopening of the economy. Now, there are other benefits to investing in national service, and we can get into those, and I think that they're super important, but I'll stop there. I mean, for the pure economic piece, I think you have to address the public health and reopening question up front and first. Well, you know, there are existing national service programs. I mean, I'm thinking of City Year, I'm thinking of Peace Corps. Um, uh, by the way, Peace Corps has suspended all its volunteer operations. Um, and Peace Corps volunteers uh, are serve in more than 60 countries around the world, volunteering, uh, bringing um, uh, their, their spirits uh, all over the world. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to what Franklin Delano Roosevelt faced and, and what, what was done during the Great Depression. And here's just Here's some background for a discussion about um, what is possible with a with, with an administration that understands the scope of disaster and is prepared to lead on it. I'll, I'll give you one example, I and mean, there are people who have heard about the WPA. Um, I'm going to focus for a moment, and, and, and we may get to talk a little bit about what the WPA did, because I hear you about uh, social contact tracing, and I hear you about needing to immediately uh, get a handle on that, but I also think that uh, when we're thinking about an economic recovery opportunity, uh, we may need a much broader and deeper effort to engage folks. And one of the most popular 
of the New Deal programs, which ran from 1933 to 1942, was a voluntary public work relief program for unemployed, unmarried men. Now, I, I will I'll confess, I've said unemployed, unmarried men. And uh, these days, things would be designed very differently. There would not be gender bias, we hope. Uh, but that was then, this is now, we'll talk about then. Um, originally, the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, uh, was designed for young men ages 18 to 25. It was eventually expanded to ages 17 to 28. It was a major part of FDR's New Deal. It provided manual labor jobs related to conservation and development of natural resources in rural lands owned by federal, state, and local governments. And it was designed to provide jobs um, to just jobs for young men and to relieve families who had trouble finding jobs during the depression. The enrollment uh, at any one time was, was in the hundreds of thousands, something like 300,000. And over the course of its nine years, 3 million young men participated um, in the CCC. They, uh, they got shelter, they got food, they got clothing, and they got a stipend, essentially, equivalent to about uh, $600 per month, and of which uh, a percentage was mandated to be uh, sent back to uh, their families. So, you know, at the time, people, people were supportive. They, they claimed that enrollment in this uh, program led to better physical shape, morale, uh, increased employability. Um, and because the CCC was really targeted at the nation's natural resources, um, it, it, it focused the nation's attention on a comprehensive national program for protecting and developing our natural resources. And given what we're seeing in rural America, which is being particularly hard hit, uh, number one, already having suffered uh, manufacturing flight, number two, a perennial being uh, behind the curve in terms of digital adoption, um, number three, suffering population loss in the past. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering whether or not um, in the recovery from pan the pandemic, something like a civilian conservation corps, which was designed to employ folks in rural America to uh, uh, would be an idea that could get any traction in a new administration coming in and looking for solutions? Well, I think that's a critical distinction at the end there about whether it might have traction in a new administration. You know, you lived through the passage of and were in Congress for the passage of ARA, the American Relief and Recovery Act, and the myriad programs put in place there. Um, you know, in a nutshell, it created a big backlash. And you saw that, it, you know, with some help and funding from right wing interest groups kind of spawned 
the Tea Party and the backlash of 2010, uh, which was uh, pretty rough uh, on the Democratic Party. I suspect that uh, an attempt to uh, create a large-scale public employment program would create a similar backlash. I think that we have to think in very strategic terms about the kinds of investments that could be made. All of that being said, there is a pretty healthy record of Republican and specifically Republican Senate support for AmeriCorps and national service programs. And so if one were targeted about it and strategic about it and focused on current needs and you kept the scale uh, a little bit more restrained, could we create something like the CCC from the 1930s and 40s? Not sure. Could we do something that goes right at the heart of what's creating the economic freeze and also had some other benefits, some lasting benefits for American society? I think quite possibly. This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where we are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Matt Robeson is the author of a moreperfectunionforum.com, a blog devoted to a deeper dive into politics. And he writes for the alternate.org. He is now a co-host of Off the Record. It's the two of us today talking about politics and the possible. Don't go away. We'll be back after this to continue our discussion. We are back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so no matter where you are, day or night, you can find us over the interwebs, the great Googles in the sky, those tubes which carry all the digital information. These days, Matt and I are broadcasting from our home remote locations like everybody else seems to be. It's um, a wild time to watch television and see everybody's home offices. I've got to say, Chris Cuomo takes the cake for elegance and his uh, beautiful background uh, somewhere in his basement. He set up a very good looking background. If you're, if you're watching, now you're only listening to us, which is an interesting thing. Uh, my wife, Pego, who is a singer, songwriter, conductor, conducts a chorus in Concord called the Songweavers through the Concord Community Music School. And she has now moved her rehearsals online. Uh, no concerts, no uh, in-person rehearsals, no get-togethers. People are trying to figure out how to sing with digital delay over the Zoom. Zoom has become the new way that we uh, communicate, that we get together. There are Zoom cocktail parties, Zoom dinner parties. Uh, Matt Robeson and I are, are recording this over Zoom as we speak. But Pego came across a very interesting article which she shared with me recently about anxiety provoked 
by all this Zooming. For some reason, people who spend a lot of time on Zoom are finding themselves absolutely exhausted. They, there's something at work that isn't quite working. It, it feels like Zoom drains your energy when, when it ought to be a kind of fun time to hang out. I mean, there are the Zoom freezes. There's the weird echo. There's the where do you look? There's what's behind you. There's, it's, it's, it's a very strange way to try to maintain a social connection. But why does it make you so tired? And it turns out that a video call requires more focus than a face-to-face -face chat. We need to work harder to process nonverbal cues like facial expressions, tone and pitch of our voice and body language. And, and it consumes a huge amount of energy. Our minds are working, but our bodies don't really feel like we're in connection. It's like a dissonant relationship. And, and it's the digitization of visual connection, it turns out, just really messes with our psyche, our emotions, uh, and our physical nature. It's very hard. We're analog beings who are now trapped in this digital age. So Matt, how are you finding the Zoom working? Is it is it is it easy for you? Do you feel like you're you've adapted to it, or is it something that's giving you trouble? Well, it's suboptimal at best. I think most people feel that way, and I think working remotely, um, you know, again, we're talking about first world problems. But I do think you're hitting on a very important kind of tip of the societal iceberg here, which is that, you know, that feeling of, of distance, uh, of not getting all of the physical cues, lacking the physical interaction, um, you know, body, body language that goes with in-person interaction is uh, one piece of what we're kind of experiencing broadly, politically and societally, um, as we retreat into what researchers call filter bubbles, which is the little sphere that we live in online where we get our information and the people we self-curate that we interact with, our sources of news. And one of the findings that's emerged in recent years is that uh, that also, these filter bubbles also create increased alienation, increased divide, increased political divide as people retreat into their online communities and perceptions. And what you're finding, there was a very interesting research that came out uh, just this week that there truly are different perceptions going on between conservatives and liberals uh, of the threat of COVID-19. And it really turns on its head longstanding social science research about the way conservatives versus liberals perceive threats, perceive problems. Um, traditionally, across societies, conservatives view threats with more alarm. They react more strongly. And liberals are the opposite. We're not finding that in the COVID situation. And in part, it's because of uh, the polarization 
and the fact that we've all retreated into these very narrow casted online channels of where we get our information, how we form our perceptions. So what you're pointing to, that sense of uh, alienation, the difficulties that go with Zooming and conducting all of your work and social life via these remote digital means, I think there's real reason for concern that it's going to deepen some of the problems that we've been seeing snowball uh, in our political and our public life over the last decade. So this week down in North Carolina, uh, you know, there have been these uh, protests, gun-toting, assault weapon-carrying, camo-wearing, uh, flag-waving protesters, gangs of protesters in various places, including uh, in Concord, New Hampshire. But down in North Carolina, the leader of the protests uh, came down with COVID-19. Uh, she, uh, she was uh, very prominently uh, uh, trying to, try to force, force everything to reopen. COVID-19 is just a hoax. Let's reopen. She came down with COVID-19, but she insisted that despite the COVID-19 diagnosis, she was going to go out and keep on protesting. Uh, and, and the folks who have been doing that have been saying, well, it's, uh, you're interfering with our liberty. Uh, our bodies are our own. All of a sudden, choice has become a new mantra for the protesters. But anyway, down in North Carolina, she uh, wanted to keep on protesting. So she went back out there. And of course, she was arrested because apparently North Carolina has some kind of statutory protection for public health so that if you've got a COVID-19 diagnosis, they don't want you out there infecting other people because of the exponential way that the coronavirus works. There, there's some, some, some hypocrisy at the very least at work in the COVID-19 protests that we've seen or the, or the anti-lockdown protests or whatever they're called. First of all, they appear to be funded by uh, right-wing uh, groups or families or, or uh, associations. Uh, it seems to be some, an organized effort, kind of like the Tea Party was. Um, the polls are showing that there aren't a large segment of Americans who appreciate or support the anti-lockdown uh, protesters. Uh, but you know, in New Hampshire, it's a, it's a challenging question. Uh, I ended up speaking to my, to folks I know on the city council in Concord about it, Matt, because in New Hampshire, we have open carry. Uh, as you'll recall, when the Republicans took control of the house, the first thing they did was uh, pass uh, a, a rule that you could open carry in the state house, uh, which I thought was pretty crazy. That's a, I thought it was a threat to public safety, not a protection as was claimed. But anyway, we have open carry. Uh, we don't need licenses to carry. And I was frankly disturbed by the sight of assault weapon carrying white men gathered on the steps of the state house with their fingers on the triggers of their assault style weapons. Not because it was a Second Amendment issue, but because I thought it was intimidating. 
I thought it was a threat to public safety. I wondered about the clash of Second Amendment uh, protections and, and those who, want, who are in favor of uh, making sure that the Second Amendment isn't infringed, and the First Amendment rights of the rest of the public to be free from intimidation uh, in what, to me, looked like something out of a scene of terrorist jihadists in, in Iraq um, in the back of Toyota pickup trucks, fingering their assault weapons, driving around with black flags flying to intimidate the public. So I think it's it, it, very instructive in this regard that new polling emerged yesterday afternoon from our friends uh, at the St. Anselm's polling center, which showed that really it's fewer than 15% of the New Hampshire public that feels that Governor Sununu's uh, steps to lock down the state have gone overboard. And uh, so you're, you're really talking about what's been demonstrated in nationwide surveys uh, to be a very distinct minority that, as you say, have been conclusively demonstrated to have been organized and fueled and funded by right-wing groups in a redux of what we saw about 11 years ago in the formation of the Tea Party, which was not a grassroots movement uh, that's been conclusively shown to have been what's called an astroturf, a false grassroots movement, um, again, funded by the same set of right-wing groups. But just to draw full circle to the earlier point you made about national service, one of the foundational principles of the Obama campaign came out of his experience uh, as a community organizer, that the way to change opinions long-term was through people-to-people -people contact that became embedded in the campaign model, as you recall, as you were part of, as you helped to lead. And one of the things that I think is a real merit of taking this moment, uh, which as you've noted is, is, is so difficult for so many, and thinking about how do we surge our national service programs for young people? It's not just about contact tracing. There are seniors who are under lockdown in their homes, um, many of whom are facing depression, who are facing logistical problems, uh, who would benefit tremendously from constant outreach from younger people that could happen across demographic and geographic and socioeconomic lines. There are other services that people sorely need legal aid services uh, that are fed into by uh, uh, these national service programs. And so part of what I think you're suggesting that we need to think about is that community organizing, but on a national scale, and thinking about how can we try to bridge some of the divides that have grown up uh, in our society and in our politics um, that lead to this small segment being able to be activated and mobilized and to grab their guns and show up outside the state house. How do we bridge across that um, and uh, try and try and reduce the temperature? It's going to be a very important component of returning our country to the kind of country where we can tolerate diversity 
where we can understand that there is strength in diversity in addition to challenge, that disagreement without being disagreeable uh, is an important way to debate important issues, that respecting differences and being able to listen to one another through filters that are less uh, hardened uh, is something that uh, we've been having, we've been struggling with. We've been struggling with it societally. We've been struggling with it in our politics. Uh, now, whether or not we can transition from this crazy time and this rather challenging time of digital connection only because we can't, we're not together. Humans are social animals. We want to be with other people. And the eerie quiet on our streets, the shuttered businesses, and the digital connections are not a good replacement for what we as humans crave. Will our cities ever be the same? Will we see a flight from the cities to rural areas like New Hampshire? We don't know what's coming. But it's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM. And we're asking all the important questions and talking about the deeper issues about politics and society. Folks, thanks for listening. We'll be back after this to wrap up. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Matt Robeson, my co-host, is the author of the More Perfect Union Forum.com, a terrific blog, and he writes for thealternet.org. Today, we had a kind of freewheeling discussion about what was going on in the world today? What's going on in politics with voting or not voting and some of the difficulties there? We talked about the ways in which increased public service programs could be a really important component of recovery. And then we got off on what it means to have the kind of gun-toting protests we've seen around the country and how we might be able to surmount any of the social tribalism that may only be more embedded by our digital connections. Matt, any last thought before we sign off? Hope people stay safe, wash their hands, stay home if you can, and uh, generally uh, try and keep up as much uh, online connection as you can, even if it's not a good substitute for in-person. And, and when it stops raining, go out and take a walk. It's really important. So, folks, we'll be back next week with more Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.